HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Square. If you run a restaurant or business, Square has the tools to help you stay connected to customers, shift your business, and navigate this uniquely challenging time. Learn more at square.com slash go slash beer sessions. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. It's Tuesday, June 9th, 2020. We're still in some kind of restricted uh, coronavirus mode, and we're recording remotely. Uh, I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host here at Heritage Radio Network. Usually we're at Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick. Right now I'm in the East Village, and we've got a couple great guests on today. Um, let's start with Ben. Everyone is going to introduce themselves. Hey, Ben Keen, beer writer, uh, former beer advocate editor um, out here in Seattle. And Catherine? Hi, Catherine from the Blind Tiger in the West Village of New York. And our special guest, Mr. Sean. Uh, Sean Lawson with Lawson's Finest Liquids in Waitsfield, Vermont. You know, one of the upsides of, of doing these remote shows rather than in studio is that we really get to talk to people that I haven't in a while. Ben, we've had you on a few times uh, the last couple months uh, calling in from Seattle. And Sean, I, I think I've been trying to get you to come to New York for about a year. So this is a great chance yeah. to talk to you about things. I mean, going way back, I first met you in 2011 at Cooperstown. Belgium comes to Cooperstown. And the connection to that was uh, one of the Blind Tiger uh, co-founders, Dave Broderick, uh, had that had his hand in Vermont. He was going to open Worthy, Worthy Burger. And he knew all the Vermont craft guys back when most of us ha- had never heard of anything. And Catherine's been a big part of that as well. Um, but let's go back to 2011 to 2008. You started with like a one-barrel system. How did that evolve to becoming like the, the double sunshine and this whole sunshine series? And, and what did you think about, you know, what was going on in Vermont craft beer at that time? Because suddenly it was like, the, it used to be like 15 years ago, everyone talked about Russian River. And then suddenly, you know, back then it was like Vermont's making the best IPAs. Well, we have come a long way since uh, we met in 2011 at um, Belgium Comes to Cooperstown. And it's hard to kind of fathom where I was at that point in time. That was actually the year that I went from one barrel up to seven barrels. 
at the original brew house, this little building I built next to my house, about 300 square feet up in Warren, Vermont. I was still making small batch beer, selling it at the farmer's market, uh, self-distributing to just a handful of accounts here in Vermont. And the seven barrel system allowed me to, you know, to start getting the beer out to more accounts. And I was like, wow, you know, it's going to be seven times as much beer. Well, it turns out as soon as you added a few accounts, we turned out we had a really uh, amazing demand for our beer and it, I couldn't make it fast enough even uh, with a larger system. So fast forward a few years, uh, that's when I uh, had developed uh, the Double Sunshine beer, became sort of our first home run. People were starting to drive from hours away, like all over the Northeast to come to Vermont, plan ahead for the farmer's market or the releases at the Warren store. Um, down in the village of Warren on Thursday mornings, they would line up. Um, and I knew that we had something uh, special on our hands. And so I wasn't quite ready to make the big leap into uh, construction, CapEx, hiring a whole bunch of people as a mom and pop business and young kids. So uh, that's when I found Two Roads. They had just opened up. Uh, they, they were doing contract brewing as well as their own brand. And they're uh, a brewery that was built for today's craft brewers. So I could bring in my own ingredients, my own process and techniques, my own yeast. And the beautiful thing is the water there in Stratford, Connecticut had a really similar profile to what I was working with up in Warren, Vermont. So it enabled me to recreate uh, the house uh, profile flavor and Sip of Sunshine was born. And that was the beer that really put us on the map, uh, as well as, you know, as you mentioned, Vermont becoming um, an IPA mecca uh, as well. And I, I looked up to uh, John Kimmick here in Vermont, who was brewing uh, Hetty Topper and Holy Cow and these other great, you know, just mind blowing IPAs uh, over at uh, The Alchemist when it was just a brew pub. Um, and then uh, a couple of years or a year or so after I opened, then Hill Farmstead came along. So Vermont really got on the map, but it, it goes a lot further back than that. When you, you know, mentioned Russian River, I really look up to uh, Natalie and Vinny there. And, um, good friendly relationship with them as well. And, you know, even though it, that might have been, um, you know, what people looked to, to 15 years ago, what's amazing is the staying power that it's still, it's still, you know, I would say resoundingly one of the very top uh, IPAs in the country and probably in the world um, for styles. But uh, back when I started, it was only about 1,500 breweries in the whole country. It's kind of crazy to think about that. Today, they're being well over 7,000. So times sure have changed, haven't they, Jimmy? No, for sure, man. And and Catherine, you know, you, you've been at the Blind Tiger for a long time. D reflect back on, you know, when Lawson's was first out, and you guys have always been the, the legacy, of, for me, the, the place for craft beer in New York City. Well, I remember, I, I don't know what year it is, but uh, Men's Journal had asked me to write something about beers, and so I did. And one of the beers that I gave a shout-out to um, – uh, was a Lawson IPA. And I think I had used, I can't remember what the original phrase was that I used, but they had changed it for the print article. And they said, it, um, and it came out saying, it reminds you of what made you fall in love with IPAs in the first place. And at the time that hit me as slightly off because here was this new kind of IPA. It was super juicy and, um, you know, playing with flavor profiles in a way that just sort of seemed to be pushing the envelope. 
Um, but you know, as, as happens when you get edited, you live with it. But now looking back after all of the changes towards the hyper juiciness and, you know, lactose and, you know, everything like that being put into IPAs. Now, when I drink um, one of Lawson's IPAs, like I'm drinking a sip of sunshine right now, and it is delicious. Now it truly does remind me of why or, and how I fell in love with IPAs in the first place. (laughs) So, um, you know, back in the day, you couldn't get any Lawson's beer at the Blind Tiger unless you were lucky enough to know Sean and have him go to extreme lengths to get us some beer for a special event, like a beer in Vermont event, something like that. Um, fast forward to today when he has not only the huge production um, comparatively um, that Two Roads allows him, we can get um, Sip of Sunshine on the regular and we're really lucky to be in that in that space. No, it's great. And you guys have so many great stories of of all the different craft beers that started out at Blind Tiger. Sean, you know, going back to the, the genesis of, of these Sunshine beers, before you were making at Two Roads, um, how did you come up with Double Sunshine? Why did you go in that direction? Uh, it was this brand new hop called Citra, and I was experimenting with new hops that were coming out, and uh, I started making some test batches on my homebrew system, just a five-gallon batch, and it was a single hop IPA, and I was like, wow, this tastes like juicy fruit. It's like so fruit-forward, um, intense, uh, aromatic, uh, tastes like pineapple and grapefruit and, you know, pick your favorite tropical fruit flavor, and it really – it was astounding. It was unlike the classic sea hops that, that I had uh, grown fond of for IPAs, like in one of our other flagships, Chinookard, that uses uh, Chinook as a classic, uh, you know, sort of old school uh, American hop. And that was that experience, that moment where I was like, wow, this is like juicy fruit that I came out. It's like, it's like taking a sip of sunshine was sort of where I came up with that whole concept of uh, sunshine. It was a double IPA, eight percent. So ended up calling it Double Sunshine. So that was really that was how Double Sunshine was born. And thankfully, it really hit a note with a lot of fans and beer drinkers out there uh, that gravitated to that newer sort of uh, that fruitiness uh, and a lot less sort of resin or pine or intense citrus uh, character that was typical of. Um, IPAs uh, of years prior. Now that's great. Let's go to Ben. So, you know, Ben, you, you've observed the craft beer scene for a long time. You were on the East Coast for a while. Uh, do, your early remembrances of this Vermont craft beer explosion? Yeah, I I was in Boston. I guess I lived there 2012 to about 2014, 2015. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of these breweries that are now quite beloved all around the country and sought after were in their early stages. Um, It's again, like you guys have already said, kind of crazy to think back because it seems both like yesterday. uh, And then also it seems like a a super long time ago. The first Lawson's beer I remember was actually um, Maple Triple, which I had, I think in 2012, my mother-in-law brought back a bottle from a house party that she went to up in Vermont. I was living in Boston and 
oh boy, that was a special beer. Um, and, and that really put Lawson's on my radar. I was like, I'm going to keep an eye on these guys. That's some good stuff. <laughs> yeah. And, and Sean, then fast forward. I mean, I know things went fast. You were the, the president of Vermont Brewers. Um, but, but this two roads thing, you know, how did you make that leap? I mean, you, you know, you got Phil Markowski at two roads, like co-brewing, but how are you, how are you able to make that leap and, and feel so confident about it? Because I'm drinking the super session number four right now. And I, I love that you're able to do this. I love seeing that I can get your cans in New York City regularly. You know, it really was a leap of faith, Jimmy, um, to put my hand, you know, to put my beer in someone else's hands. Um, because up to that point, I did everything. You know, I brewed the beer, I kept the books, mopped the floor, I delivered the beer, <laughs> I do all the customer relationship. Uh, it was really a one-man show with the help of my wife behind the scenes. And so, uh, you know, knowing that Phil Markowski was there, uh, great respect for him as a brewmaster, um, looking at the team they put together uh, that, are, that had decades of experience in the beer industry, and then knowing the approach that they had gave me the confidence um, that we could possibly create a beer there that would meet my expectations and that would meet the expectations that my fans have or our fans have for our beers and the flavor profile for our beers. But, you know, going in, I said, you know, this is a trial run. I don't, we don't want to grow or just need to grow for the sake of growing our business. The beer has to be right. And after we do two test batches, if it's not hitting the mark, we're not going to move forward with this contract brewing relationship. It just, I can't, we've generated such great goodwill and such a great name for our brand. Um, I did not want to wreck that at all or jeopardize it. So the great part of it was that the first one was intended to be uh, a, a, a drain pour. You know, we brewed half a batch, 50 barrels on their 100 barrel system. Uh, it was intended to be completely a test to see how it came out. I formulated the recipe uh, completely myself. I got a little bit of guidance from them. I was actually looking for more guidance from them on recipe development. But uh, in the end, I, I wrote it all myself, uh, came up with the hopping rates and the process. And the first 50 barrels, we tasted it. And I was like, wow, I will put Lawson's finest name on that beer. So instead of dumping it down the drain, we didn't even have packaging because we weren't sure we were going to go forward with this. So we packaged it all up into kegs and uh, and started selling Sip of Sunshine, brewed in Stratford, Connecticut at Two Roads Brewing. Oh, that's great, man. And Ben had a lot of questions for you. So let, let's go to one of Ben's questions. Let Ben take over. Uh, okay, I'll dive in. Um you guys uh, opened up your newer, much larger facility. Um, what was that? Late 2018, Sean, I think. Yeah, October of 2018. Um, so I'm just curious, you know, going from your origins in the, uh, in the Wizards Workshop to your um, much larger facility now, what's different about running the brewery? I remember you talking years ago about not wanting to manage people, I imagine, you have to manage some people now. <laughs> oh, man. Thankfully, we have an awesome team, a really amazing team. And uh, we hired some fantastic uh, senior managers, our directors, which are the leadership team. Um, and they largely uh, manage the staff. But I also, they're, 
those are my staff that I have to manage and lead that team. And so, yeah, uh, running a company of, with 50 employees is, is really different than a little small mom and pop business where you're selling beer basically out of the back of your car and down at the farmer's markets. And, you know, it has its share of challenges. Um, but the fact that we took our time to get here and it was 10 years in the making before we built our production facility here in Waitsfield, Vermont, and finally opened up a destination and created a, a home for Lawson's Finest for our fans because we never had a, a, a customer-facing uh, place before. And that's been really gratifying and exciting. Um, you know, running a, running a staff and a company of this size now, it has – it's – it's not as fun as brewing in the wizard's workshop. I'll tell you that. Um, but it's really gratifying to know that um, we've created all these great jobs for uh, the folks that work here. Uh, we have a really interesting model on the service side where uh, in lieu of tips, uh, we don't accept tips uh, at the tap room, but instead we accept donations for our sunshine fund, which is part of our social impact program or our SIP. Um, and we give back to the local community and Vermont nonprofits in a huge way. Um, and so that's been, you know, that's been really exciting for my wife, Karen, and I. She, she runs the, the SIP, the Social Impact Program, as well as all of our charitable giving programs. So it's, it's really different than it used to be. And I, I think Ben had this question, but I also, Dylan, had it too. So as you grew, I mean, you've had core values for your business and your community, which includes this the Sunshine Fund, and especially in these times, Black Lives Matter is social responsibility. So how did you guys evolve as, as a company, and how did you set your core values in the beginning? Or at what point did you have to set core values? You know, it was important to really art more clearly articulate our core values before we opened, uh, you know, physical premises to the public and before we added a lot of staff. Because really just up until uh, 2018, we just had a couple of employees. I, ha I hired my first uh, full-time employee in 2016. So it was eight years in uh, that it was just me working full-time, Karen working part-time in the beginning, and then uh, joining uh full-time later on. And so uh, that was a big leap. So we got clear about what the core values are that we have and, and what our brand pillars are. And that was easy to focus in on because of what, it's what I had been practicing for the last eight years. And we focus on excellence, first and foremost, not only in the quality of the beer that we make, but in the way that we do our business and the way that we communicate with one another and now the way that we um, treat our employees um, we take care of our local community. We give back uh, through all of our charitable giving programs. Um, fun is right at the center of our core values because Ben and Jerry got it right. They're like, if it's not fun, why do it? And so it's really important for us to have fun, um, to stay a little whimsical, and then also to be authentic, to be true to who we are. And, and now for us as a bigger company, true to brand, uh, is a phrase that we, ref we we reflect on and refer on because Sip of Sunshine might have been one of what was called an early New England IPA, but I tell people it's an IPA that's brewed in New England because if you hold it up next to New England IPAs, it looks pretty darn clear these days. There's a little bit of fresh hoppy haze in there, um, but it's a relatively clear beer in today's point of reference. And finally, we just uh, we're always trying to innovate 
both in uh, the beers that we make and uh, in the way that we conduct our business. Like early on, keeping the beer cold and keeping it fresh was innovative. I had to you know, really make the case to distributors that if they wanted to carry our beer, one of the prerequisites was cold supply chain. It's got to be cold from start to finish. I keep it cold to you. You keep it cold in your warehouse and deliver it cold right to the retailer. And I only want to work with retailers that can place the beer on cold storage and then cold display. So, you know, 12 years ago, that was pretty darn innovative in the, in the beer world. And thankfully, we've gravitated more towards taking better, better care of perishable beers, especially IPAs and hoppy profiles uh, that refrigeration is essential to preserving that brewery fresh uh, flavor. Well, Sean, I'm going to give a shout out. One of your yeah. biggest fans, uh, there's a, a beer writer, beer buyer in New York called uh, Martin Johnson. I know him from way back. He, he used to do cheese tastings at DBA with Ray Dieter. He's now one of the beer buyers at the, the West Side Market on 3rd Avenue in Manhattan. And he's he's always got your Super Session and your uh, Sip of Sunshine. So just a big shout out to Martin. Hey, going back right to on. this. So I always, back when I met you and, and it was, you know, Hetty Topper and, you know, Double Sunshine were at the top of my list. And to me, those were Vermont IPAs. And somehow I missed the evolution to New England IPA. And I, I don't know if you guys got lost in that shuffle, but to me, I still felt that Vermont was was the birth of it all. And I don't know if, Catherine, uh, you want to join in about how you, how you represent that to your customers now, you know, describing Vermont or New England IPAs. or It's confusing. Well, it is confusing and it's, you know, it's real hard because we try to be style specific on our board so people get the beer that they want, or at least they have some sort of expectation that is realistic about what they're drinking. And, you know, I go back and forth about do I put New England IPA um, or just IPA and I find it better to just put IPA and leave it to a discussion with my bartenders because there are so many different ways you can interpret New England IPA. I mean, I agree. It's like the first, you know, beers that came out that started the conversation about New England IPA were definitely Lawson's, Alchemist, and Hill Farmstead. And today, if you were to drink, you know, almost any of those beers and pour it in a glass next to something that's considered a, you know, quintessential New England IPA, like maybe something from other half or tired hands. Number one, it would look very different. The mouthfeel is one is like almost like a sharp, bright turn different. And there's so many different elements that, um, that have changed in what we're now calling New England IPA, even though the roots are arguably from those three main breweries. So therefore, like as a descriptor, New England IPA, it's it, it's it's useful if you're now talking about you know the kind of you know the far the the far reaches of the definition, but it's not that useful when you're talking about anything from a you know traditional West Coast IPA to you know one of these IPAs that we're talking about now. Like I'm drink, drinking again the sip of sunshine, and it's got some West Coast elements definitely, but the hot profiles like this is again like where I think the term juicy or originated from was you know, part of what Sean was doing with those, with the new hops and, you know, really trying to get that juiciness in there. And that's just such an elemental part of the New England IPA. So basically, Jimmy, the answer is I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting because the other day I, I followed Jeff Alworth on, uh, you know, Brivana on Twitter, and he does these different um, polls on Twitter. And his question the other day was, 
would you rather have a New England IPA or a West Coast IPA? And surprisingly, 75% of, of his you know, listeners said West Coast IPA. So m- maybe we're on to something. I don't know, Ben? Um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, Catherine hit the nail on the head uh, for sure. Um, I talked to lots of brewers all over the country. And although the style has evolved, I guess you could say, um, the vast majority of them point to uh, Vermont and Hetty Topper often um, as the, you know, sort of er beer, so to speak. Um, and uh, yeah, I think now uh, to your point, Jimmy, uh, it's interesting that maybe the pendulum swinging a little bit back towards those uh, clearer, drier, um, maybe even slightly lower ABV beers, which maybe could be a segue into Sean's new beer. <laughs> uh, well, thanks for the plug, Ben. But I and I think to comment on what you guys, uh, uh, Ben and Catherine, uh, both just said is that I think that's where the Brewers Association got it right in um, for beers that are brewed all over the country to dub the style uh, juicy or hazy IPA as as the best uh, sort of descriptor um, for this this new style or, or new genre of IPA because there's so many there's a whole color wheel uh, not not necessarily of colors but there are different colors of IPAs but just the the different flavors and interpretations of IPAs out there these days but I think hazy or juicy or juicy and hazy whatever however you want to phrase it um, is a good uh, broad descriptor for that that evolution from um, what we called we didn't even call them Vermont IPAs we were just fresh hoppy IPAs back then um, in 2008 2010 when we were brewing them and and it's certainly in the brewers you know I can't speak for John at the Alchemist or Sean up at Hill Farmstead um, but we never really considered ourselves uh, the originators of a particular style or felt like I'll speak for myself just that I had any provenance over that, that style of brewing. It was just brewing what we love to drink. Oh, that's great. And I think this is a good time. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a minute on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. This episode is brought to you by Square. We all know that this is an incredibly challenging time for our friends running restaurants and small food businesses. With social distancing in place, people are staying home and eating in, and restaurants have had to pivot to pickup and delivery only. HRN would usually be recording our podcast from our studio inside Roberta's, but since they've had to close their dining room, they've ramped up their frozen pizza production, set up a wine and grocery shop, and seen their delivery orders skyrocket. Like Roberta's, many restaurants have been changing offerings day by day as they figure out how to best serve their customers. If you run a restaurant or small business, Square has the tools to help you adapt. One of these tools is the Square online store. It lets you set up a free online ordering page with curbside pickup and local delivery so you can keep customers safe. You can deliver orders yourself or integrate with delivery partners. Its order hub lets you manage all your incoming orders in one place, no matter which delivery partners you choose to use. Square has all the tools to help you stay connected to customers no matter where they are. 
Learn more at square.com slash go slash beer sessions. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. We've got a special show. We're talking with Sean Lawson of Lawson's Finest, going back to the origins of Vermont IPA. Um, you know, Sean, we've just covered a lot of things with, with Ben Keen and Catherine Kyle. Um, but let's talk about some of the new beers that you have coming out. Right on, Jimmy. Well, right now I'm sipping on a beautiful beer uh, that resides in the space in between styles. We call it an undefined ale. And it's one of these beers that's uh, it's hazy, it's dry hopped, uh, it's slightly tart uh, from the addition of acidulated malt. Uh, and, uh, it's sort of a non-style. So I was like, what are we going to call it? It's not a pale ale. It's not a not quite pale ale. It's not like a dry hopped something or other. So we just called it an undefined ale. And I came up with the name space, the space in between. And people are like, oh, that's, is that a, is that a, uh, Dave Matthews song? And I'm like, nope, that one is from, fish because it actually is in two different <laughs> lyrics and two different songs with uh with my favorite vermont band uh fish and a shout out to the griff too my other favorite vermont band but the space in between that we have out right now is our passion fruit version this is a brand new beer uh, we had a lot of fun creating this beer we got passion fruit uh, samples a puree so it's real fruit edition there's no extracts no concentrate no nothing but real passion fruit in the beer and we got it from four different vendors from um from chile from ecuador and from mexico and we tried out the the puree from these different suppliers and and picked out the one that really had uh just the right flavor profile the right balance of acidity passion fruit is really acidic it does have an element of sweetness and there's certainly sugar in there uh but it amps up the tartness of the base beer, which is the space in between. And what I use on this beer is a profile of Southern Hemisphere hops. I use Nelson Sylvan, which gives it a, that vinous character, and Galaxy, which adds a bit of tangerine. So it's a really complex flavor profile in a lower ABV beer. It's 5%, 5.0. And with the addition of the passion fruit, it really brings up the acidity level there's a nice tartness to the beer. It's actually about 3.8 on the pH scale. Uh, the passion fruit uh, comes through really nicely in the flavor. It's a great summer refresher, and it's out in cans. It just started going out into the market uh, uh, this week, uh, the week of June 7th, and uh, it's going to be available in all nine states that we distribute, all through New England, uh, New York, uh, New Jersey, and Eastern Pennsylvania. So I'm really excited about this beer and I'm sipping on it right now. It is, it is so refreshing and quenching for uh, a warm spring or summer day. Mm. Great. I can't wait to get the tiger. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, it's, it's, it's headed your way. Excellent. And Catherine, do, how do you, you know, do, do you serve all of the Lawson's finest that, that come to you? You know, are, are yeah. you, you're staying loyal to it or are you, are you, you know, how are you picking the beers now? Well, I mean, at this present moment, Jimmy, it's a crazy time, as we all know, because um, we have a fledgling to-go business, so I'm barely serving any beer um, right now out of our to-go window. But overall, in general, um, yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that I'm most thankful about is that we get Lawson's now. 
and it's all of their beers are great. Um, sadly, we have a keg of maple nipple in our cold box, which we probably it's probably going to be past its prime by the time we get back to, <laughs> to it's draft a, beer. It's a good keeper, actually. Is it? That's think? one not being a hoppy beer. Oh, we yeah. saved. We did a special event with the farmhouse up in Burlington, and much to my chagrin. They had sh- saved a keg of maple nipple for a whole year. Oh. Maple triple, I would advise that, but it was stored cold, uh-huh. and a year later, it tasted beautifully. It had aged very nicely. So that beer is a keeper, and it definitely uh, is good for a long time if it's kept cold. That is good to know. That's one of the beers that I sort of I I, I was like, well, you know, we'll see. I'm, and I was thinking maybe I'd ask you after the show and say like, what do you yeah, think? You Should I try it in a month when you know if I don't don't get back to draft beer for that long? And so I'm, I'm really glad to hear that looking forward to that too so yeah jimmy i I mean his beers are always great and it's always a treat to have him and like i said we're just lucky now that you know we're in the the regular distribution oh that's great ben you've got a whole bunch of other questions let's go to your next question (laughs) i uh yeah i guess i did some homework uh sean i'm curious you uh said that one of your core values is fun which i think is um, honorable and admirable. Um, and it reminds me of the Vermont Brewers Festival, which um, was always one of the most fun events up there uh, in the summertime. And it's getting moved this year. Um, and, you know, which I guess is better than canceled, which is happening to a lot of beer fests. What, what do you think is going to be different? How will um, the Guild make changes? Well, I'm sad to report, Ben, that uh, that since they've rescheduled it to Labor Day weekend, uh, the governor has come out and said that all festivals and fairs are off limits for the year. So, oh, wow. sadly, the Vermont Brewers Festival uh, will not be happening this year. Um, and it's a real challenge for guilds across the country that depend on events like the Vermont Brewers Festival and their own state festivals um, to generate revenue for their you know, for their nonprofit association that um, promotes brewers, helps to educate and advocate uh, for their local breweries. So, you know, challenging time for for a lot of people out there and and including the nonprofit guild. So they're getting creative with uh, some fundraising events, Facebook events. Uh, Matter of fact, this weekend, the VBA is doing a, a brew through. So like a drive through uh, farmer's market style uh, beer sale, and they've got a good uh, number of breweries on hand with pop-up tents. You pre-order the beer, and the breweries load it right into the trunk of your car uh, with it being uh, prepaid, and check your ID, of course. Um, so it's you know the the association's getting creative, and it's imperative uh, for survival at this point that they do get creative to help raise some money to to keep going. And then in that case, Sean, what about, we kind of know what's happening in New York, you know, as Catherine said, very slowly there's there's some reopening, some takeout windows at bars and restaurants. Uh, but w- what's it going to be like this summer at, at your, your new brewery location in Vermont? It's going to look really different. It's pretty surreal that our tap room's been closed for uh, just about three months. Um, we closed on March 15th and... Thankfully, we've got a steady drive-through business, so we pivoted our retail sales uh, to a drive-through model. Uh, we set up online ordering. We take orders over the phone. You can also just drive up and 
order from the window of your car and our staff pulls together your beer order and loads it into the back seat or the trunk of your car. And um, that's been steady, but of course it really doesn't make up for all of the on-premise business we did. So we're really looking forward to getting back open, at least in a limited way. And the first step for us will be outside service only. So we'll be serving beer out in the beer garden. The biggest change for us will be pivoting to uh, table service and a reservation system because the state of Vermont is requiring uh, restaurants and dining establishments and uh, breweries that do start serving to be one outside is the first step. Uh, and you have to have a reservation system in place. No walk-ups. We've got to collect names and contact information um, for everyone in the event that it's needed for contact tracing. And so it's a big change in sort of service model for us, but we are currently training our staff. Uh, we put in place uh, a really solid model, what we hope will be uh, the way to deliver the world-class service for world-class beer that our fans have come to expect. So it'll look really different. Hopefully we'll have a lot of good weather. And then as uh, hopefully the situation continues to improve um, with the coronavirus outbreak, then we'll be able to open, open up the tap room in, you know, in limited steps right now, the state of Vermont just allowed restaurants starting this week to open up for indoor service but it's extremely limited. You can only have a, a, a maximum of 10 people, staff and customers included, or 25% of occupancy, whichever is greater, uh, for indoor restaurants uh, and breweries. So we're, we're not going to reopen with indoors just yet, but we're pretty close to opening for outdoor beer garden service. And thank goodness summer is on the doorstep and it's not January. Now, I think a lot of people are going to be taking road trips this summer for sure. <laughs> you know, um, one thing that Ben said, the Wizards Workshop, what, what was that? What is it? Take us back. Um, that's a reference to the original uh, brewery up in Warren, and um, that's part of what helps me keep me sane, especially these days. So I brew on the seven-barrel system up there probably once or twice a month. We use that for uh, special projects collaborations with other breweries that we do on a small batch basis, uh, R&D, some experimental beers. Um, and it, it's, the, it's the place where I get to get into the brew house and, uh, and do everything myself and uh, stay connected with my roots as a brewer. That's great, man. And Ben, have you been up there? I have not been to the the new facility, and um, yeah, when I was still living in New England, um, it was just the uh, you know Secret Wizards Workshop, which uh, I think you know Sean didn't really <laughs> encourage people to go track him down. <laughs> you couldn't get there from here. We kept the address right? <laughs> off the radar, off the map, and we were not open to the public because it was located next to my house. No, and, it, and it's great. I mean, other than without Dave Broderick and meeting you at Cooperstown, and I think I, I tried one of the Maple series many years ago, I wouldn't have known about you. And Catherine, just tell us about your connections with Vermont. You know, uh, I know you've been up there. Dave Broderick lives there. Uh, Blind Tiger and Vermont have a very special relationship. Oh, yeah. I mean, from early days um, of the Blind Tiger, you know, we did, I guess one of our I don't know if it was one of our earliest, but among the first generation of events that we used to do was Vermont beer and cheese. And so um, drive up to Vermont and 
get some beers, <laughs> get some cheese, drive them on back. And this was back before social media and back before there were so many people doing this kind of stuff. So it was a little bit easier to have things be a little fuzzy in terms of where exactly the beer came from. We would never do something like that anymore. But <laughs> but at the time, it was it really allowed us to explore what was happening up in Vermont and it being a state that you know, Dave has special ties to, I have special ties to a lot of people, you know, just really felt this, you know, great tie to Vermont. And it was always one of our most anticipated and enjoyed events that we did. So it was, I I don't know, that's the kind of the early stuff. And then eventually, you know, Dave wound up moving up there and opening um, Worthy Burger and Worthy Kitchen and he and his wife Iris live up there. And um, every time I see pictures, I'm very jealous of their idyllic lifestyle but then everything looks idyllic on social media (laughs) but but vermont i lived in vermont myself you know right out of high school so i've always had a you know a super great appreciation of the state sadly i've not been to lawson's but i think that um you know some of the guiding principles like really you know um having community be right up there i don't know if that's something that draws people to vermont or people are drawn somehow through that community or once they're there, they experience it, but it usually does wind up coming out either in people's businesses or lifestyles. But yeah. I think that's one of the, the challenges that Sean was talking about operating the tap room. Now it's, you know, how, how do you, how do you have a place and that drives, you know, that is driven by community when you're, when you're socially distant. And I think we're all going to be discovering new ways to do that. Like Jimmy, this radio show doing it remotely. It's really strange, but it's fine. It works. You know, we're connecting <laughs> anyway. No, that, that's great. I mean, and you've got a great perspective on things too. I will say this. I'm, I, I, I would definitely be putting Lawson's finest tap location on my road trip list because it sounds like it's 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 really welcoming. Um, yes, please. We got to get both you and Catherine up here, Jimmy. Yes. No, yes. We're we're gonna do that. <laughs> I'm gonna go back one more time because again, it was like this guy Sean Lawson for Little One Barrel Brewery. Suddenly, he's like president of the Vermont Brewers Guild. What was that like? Because there's like politics and funding. I, I want to. I want you to tell me about that experience. Um, I'm speechless. Yeah, politics. It was really, I mean, it was an honor for me to uh, to serve as the president uh, for several years. And I served on the board for nine years. I did three, uh, three-year terms. So I've said I, I did my service. I put in my time. I'm now retired. And there are politics and there's a lot of drama. And you know why? Because people are really passionate. They really care about um, their business, they care about the beer, um, and they care about their community of Vermont brewers, and they want to see it done right. And I, I think that same could be true of many guilds across the country. And thankfully, I had some prior experience, um, you know, not as a as a board member, but sort of as a as a member of a member driven organization. And you could see with you know a, a, an organization that's run by a board of directors. Um, that personalities and politics and drama is sort of the you know the the course du jour for 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 that type of organization for a membership driven organization, and again it just it's you know it can be really challenging, but at the end of the day, it's because people are really they care and they're passionate. Um, but it was an honor for me to serve as the uh, as the president. And what happened during that time was um, we we helped to pull people together 
in a time that was really tough for the Vermont Brewers Association. Going back to the beginning, Greg Noonan from the Vermont uh, Pub and Brewery, somebody I admire uh, tremendously um, and gave me advice before I started my brewery. He was instrumental in starting the Vermont Brewers Association, and he had just passed away um, a couple years or a year or so prior to that and sort of the, the, the ship was a little bit rudderless and it needed some leadership. And so we brought in, uh, we hired a new executive director. We brought in, um, not that the Kurt, uh, the Stouter, the prior executive director had done a phenomenal job, but what we did was pull together some funds to hire a full-time director. And uh, we brought in Tom McCormick from California to do some work with our board. We brought in Acacia Coast from the Brewers Association to help us put together a roadmap, a strategic plan for the organization. Um, and it's really come together. The board of directors and the committees, the, all the people that volunteer for the guild have really done tremendous work over the last handful of years to put the guild on a track of success. And it's it's been so successful. So it's it's a little scary facing down, you know, both of the festivals that uh, the Vermont Brewers uh, host each year uh, being canceled this year, but I think uh, they they and we will figure out uh, a way to get through it. But I'm I'm honored to have served for for the guild uh, to be an advocate for all of Vermont breweries. That's great. And then just up about your your new beer, um, what is it again? Oh, that's my cue. Space in between. <laughs> so are you drinking it? Well, I just finished my space in between, so I'm I'm cracking open the newest one, which is Little Sip IPA. So where is that going to be available? So this beer is going to be launched here in Vermont uh, on June 26th at our drive-through retail location here in Waitsfield, Vermont, and then starting that's going to be a Friday, and then starting the following Monday on the 29th, it's going to be available uh, at select accounts all across Vermont. Uh, in distribution in cans, and then looking further down the road, we'll see how it goes. Um, we'd certainly love to bring this beer uh, to all of our fans, but you know, we'll see how it goes. We'll see how people like it, see how it's received. I've got high hopes for this beer. It's it's like little cousin to our flagship sip of sunshine. That's great. It's, uh, it comes in with the same flavor profile, but it's six point two percent alcohol. Uh, instead of the eight that you'll find in Sip of Sunshine. It's a little bit more approachable, a little bit more of a refresher and sort of leaning towards, you know, when you get done with a bike ride or a hike or or a jog in the park or whatever your favorite outdoor activity is, this is going to be a great match to that activity and, and the end of it as well. It's got a beautiful aroma of, uh, of grapefruit uh, and pineapple and uh, and sort of it, I really tried to match the flavor profile, sip of sunshine, uh, but skinny it up a little bit, and that's why we call it little sip. Catherine, what are you drinking? I'm drinking my sip of sunshine. I'm making this beer last the whole time. <laughs> and Ben, what do you have out in Seattle? Uh, I I can't get delicious uh, Lawsons, so um, I'm drinking a Japanese lager from a great um, brewery out here called Aslan up in Bellingham, Washington. That's great. I've seen that. I've seen that in New York too. I think Aslan's kind of buzzed. Um, and back to back to Sean. Last thing. So working with again, it, it's still a big deal that Two Roads open and the way you work with them and it really expanded your brand. Um, 
you know, like for the new beers, like space in between and, and, and little, or if you do little sip IPA, are you still hands-on working with the team at Two Roads to develop that recipe? Or do, or do you have like another brewer that's working with you now? Um, well, Little Sip is, is brewed here in Vermont, and uh, I am in, in real close contact with the team down at Two Roads on a regular basis each week. And we get, again, the beauty of working remotely before COVID-19, even I was getting all the data from Two Roads. They post it up in Dropbox, and so I can go in and look at every batch. I can look at the batch data as it progresses through. Um, the hardest part is not being there to taste the beer, but what we have them do is as soon as it's packaged, overnight us uh, samples so that I can uh, we can quality check it before it goes out into the marketplace. But they have a great team of uh, sensory analysis there, and uh, I have confidence that anything that they taste and says it meets true the brand for our beer i i have confidence and faith in their in their team down there but we love to taste it ourselves so that's how i work with two roads and then here in vermont this recipe i developed myself we started it out on the pilot batch on the one one barrel system here in waitsfield and then i brewed a couple of batches myself up in warren made a few tweaks to the recipe in uh, the beer I'm sipping right now, I brewed up on the seven barrel system uh, in Warren as a, this is our final uh, test run of this beer. And we brewed up a 40 barrel batch uh, two times over uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, or about a week and a half ago. And uh, that beer is in progress for release here in, in later June. But the team here in Waitsfield at the brewery at our uh, Waitsfield production brewery, they, they really do all the work. I, I'm more involved in, uh, recipe development and formulation, um, setting the process, and then most importantly, and my favorite part, tasting the beer at the end. <laughs> That's a good one, man. Well, anyway, this has been a great show because we, for me, it, it, what you've done is is represented a lot of what I loved about craft beer, starting with a you know home brewer doing a one barrel system, you know, developing this kind of whole iconic Vermont slash hazy IPA style and. Uh, kind of growing as the industry grew. Um, I don't, let's have Ben and Catherine just give a closing statement or, or a question. Start with it, Ben. Uh, closing statement, okay. <laughs> or a um, question. You know, I'll ask, I'll ask Sean one more quick question um, because you're a, a hop head for sure, it would seem. Do you have any new um, hop varieties that you've been playing around with maybe on your small system that um, are exciting? Um, that's a great that's a great question. What we're doing right now is we're trialing out some new varieties on our one barrel pilot system for our super session series. The super session is a four point eight percent session IPA. Um, it's our number two flagship. Uh, I brew that beer down at Stratford, Connecticut, also at Two Roads. And so each number we have a number. Um, for each beer and each one uh, is a different single hop variety on the same base beer um, so there's nothing uh, that's uh, unusual or experimental but there are hop varieties that I haven't worked before with they're, they're newer varieties like we have uh, Loral, uh, Meridian is a newer hop um, one that's been around for a while but I've never worked with before is uh, another uh, southern hemisphere hop uh, Motueka um, oh yeah, I love that uh, one. Azaka, I've never that's been around for a little while, but I've never worked worked with it before. 
Um, we've trialed out uh, Strata. So we're doing a bunch of uh, those uh, super session pilot batches right now to try out different hops. Um, and then what was one of the newer ones we worked with on, uh, on an IPA that I did as a collaboration? It's escaping me right now, but uh, always on the lookout for new flavor profiles. Great. Catherine, anything else? Uh... Um, I, let's see. I was just thinking about this whole conversation about how much I really just want to give a shout out to Sean Lawson and what an awesome person he is. He really is one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. Um, oh, but you're so sweet. <laughs> it's absolutely true. Um, and I'm thinking about Ben, who's a writer, and Jimmy, who does this great show, and just how much I appreciate all the different aspects of the craft beer community and what an important piece it is, not only to my life, but I think just to so many people's lives. And I think, you know, everybody does so much work to you know, elevate the art and the science and the community. And I just love it very much. So thank you, everybody. Wow. You, you guys have been great. I'm going to give a shout out. Uh, you could become a member at heritageradionetwork.org. Uh, right now for this month, uh, every new membership, 10% will be donated to a Black Lives Matter related cause. Uh, check it out, heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Uh, big shout out. Thank you to our producer, Dylan Hoyer and uh, master engineer, uh, Matt Patterson. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host. Thanks for joining me here, uh, Sean, Catherine, and Ben. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right, guys. Woo! Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.